Good morning. Again, we want to acknowledge to our Father and our God in heaven that we are grateful for all of his love, mercy, and blessings. Amen. One of the great things about the God that we serve is that even things that are unpleasant at the outset uh, unfold to become things that bless our lives in ways we never could have imagined. Uh, I'm trying to uh, embrace the fact that trials and trouble can help us grow in ways that sunshine and laughter cannot. Uh, the psalmist declared in Psalm 119 verse 71, he said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. I'm trying to learn in life that sometimes you have to find the blessing uh, in the things that you go through because it doesn't always make itself uh, readily known uh, on the surface, but God is able to bless us in everything and in every way. And for all of God's blessings, we ought to be eternally grateful. We want to direct your attention again to uh, the text that was read into our hearing very enthusiastically, help us uh, get an appreciation uh, for what was going on there. Uh, you know, with many of those events, I don't think they are just kind of the sit calm and read. Uh, there, there, there are some uh, dramatic things going on when we read scripture. Uh, we want to look again there in John chapter 19, and we want to read again uh, verse number 18. John 19 verse 18, where they crucified him and two other with him, one on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. Based on John's account of the gospel here, uh, we want to use this morning as a subject, the cross in the middle. And as we consider the text that we have before us here in John chapter 19, it impresses me more and more that the Bible is written with a certain deliberateness. Uh, and by that I mean that the writers didn't just write for the sake of writing. That there is a reason behind the things that the Holy Spirit has chosen to reveal to us. Uh, I submit to you that we have the Bible for at least two reasons. Uh, we have it for our information. John would tell us in the next chapter, John 20, verses 30 and 31, uh, and many other um, signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life through his name. It's written in part for our information, but then based on what Paul said to Timothy, I know that it's written also for our preparation. Uh, you remember the great passage there, 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul declares all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good word. The, the Bible is written to equip us to live lives that bring glory to God. And, and one of the things I found, that the challenge of Christianity is to daily live a life worthy of being called God's child. 
Do you know that? That's what God expects of us. Every day throughout the day, I expect you to live a life worthy of being called my child. Now, that means even in the heat of the moment. You ever acted in the heat of the moment? Uh, you, you ever been telling somebody something you did in the heat of the moment? You know, you're recounting the story, and uh, it usually it says something like, and child, before I knew it. <laughs> you know, it when, when you act in the heat of the moment, you tend to draw on what you have in reserve. But, but what I'm learning is what you have in reserve isn't just what you have in reserve. It's what you've been storing up before the heat of the moment ever rolled around. So if I will put the word of God in reserve, then when I get into one of those heat of the moment situations where I act without thinking, I'll draw on my reserve, but since my reserve is the word of God, when I tell that story, it's one that I can tell and not mind that people repeat uh, what I did when it happened. The text before us helps to prepare us beforehand uh, uh, for the heat of the moment. When we look at John chapter 19, uh, it, it deals with one of the single most important events in the history of mankind. In this chapter, we find articulated to us some of the details concerning the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And with the advantage of scriptural hindsight, we're able to look back on this event and, and recognize it as a fulfillment of, of God's provision for salvation. But I submit to you that without scriptural hindsight, uh, uh, many of us may well never have understood the significance of the cross in the middle. Consider that crucifixion was a commonplace occurrence in the days of Jesus. It, it wasn't like, you know, Jesus was the only one ever crucified. The Romans routinely crucified people. And, and no doubt many of the people at that time were drawn to this event by the same morbid curiosity that draws us to an automobile accident. You, you, you ever been driving home uh, and, and traffic is backed up sometime for miles, and, and when you finally get to where the backup started, all it is is a bunch of nosy people rubbernecking trying to see what happened. Now, I don't know who was in the car. I don't know necessarily how the accident happened, but, but everybody going by wants to take a look. You know, and I've always said, unless you're going to get out and help, keep going and let the rest of us get where we're going. The text articulates to us that when Jesus was crucified, two others were crucified with him. And without the benefit of the perspective of the Gospels, there's nothing glorious or attractive about the cross in the middle. That someone was crucified does not in and of itself lead us to see salvation in the working. To be sure, crucifixion was as much a degradation as it was a punishment. One source declares that crucifixion, uh, the act of nailing or binding a person to a cross or a tree, whether for executing or for exposing a corpse, it was considered the cruelest and most shameful method of capital punishment it was commonly used by the Romans for slaves in cases of robbery and rebellion. So when somebody said crucifixion, you already started thinking about a certain character of individual. 
It, when they said somebody was crucified, it, it, your mind wasn't drawn to somebody that had lived a noble life and somebody who had everybody else's best interest at heart. It, when they said somebody was crucified, you immediately thought someone who must have been a criminal. When we look at the Bible record, the Bible affirms uh, you know, how they used to look at crucifixion. Uh, Barabbas, whom the Jews chose over Jesus, was being held for insurrection and murder. In fact, you remember, Pilate thought that this was a no-brainer. If I offer them Barabbas versus Jesus, surely they'll choose Jesus, because Barabbas is sure enough a criminal. Jesus, they just have some, you know, religious issues with. And in his mind, you know, given the choice between the two, surely the crowd would choose Barabbas. We are told, uh, uh, choose Jesus, thank you. Uh, 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 we are told in the other gospel accounts, the two crucified with Jesus uh, are identified as thieves in Mark 15, 27, and malefactors in Luke 23, verse 39. Jesus was numbered with these transgressors. That means they viewed him in the same way they viewed the others. By crucifying him, they were saying that he was no better than the average common criminal. So on the surface of the event, there was nothing extraordinary about the cross in the middle. But in light of the Bible witness, it becomes apparent that there is something extremely special about the cross in the middle. When we look at this event, you don't see things that we haven't seen before. If you follow Jesus' trial, you want to talk about a miscarriage of justice. But we've seen miscarriages of justice before uh, uh, in history and in our world today. We've seen people vent their own personal vendetta to the point where they physically uh, uh, abuse and assault other people. This was nothing new uh, uh, in Jesus' day. But there's something extraordinary about the cross in the middle as common as the events may look on the surface. And I submit to you that the extraordinary thing about the cross in the middle had nothing to do with the cross itself. It was the one on the cross in the middle uh, that makes the difference. When we look at this from the perspective of those that were there, despite the spin put on it due to political expediency and moral depravity, if this wasn't your average criminal, this wasn't your run-of-the-mill felon on the cross in the middle, we know from the Bible witness that the one on the middle was, as John relates to us in John 1 verse 14, was God with us. Uh, you remember John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was uh, 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 with God, and the word was God. And, and then in verse 14, he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, uh, this was God in the flesh on the cross. And, and so when we look here at, at John chapter 19, and, and verse number 17, it says, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. I submit to you, number one this morning, that the cross in the middle speaks of God's love. Now appreciate, since the Father and the Son are one, and we know this because so Jesus said in John 10 verse 30, when one of them does something, 
In effect, the author also does it. So in giving him his son, God was effectively giving himself. And it's not just that he died, but it's the manner and means of his death. He died as a sacrifice. Now, do you remember Paul, Romans 5, verse number 8? Paul declares, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we talk about his love, and some translations render it his own love, a love that is unique to God, you know, in contrast to human love, which we tend to reserve for those who love us, uh, you know, we find it easier to love those that act the way we want them to act and those that are the kind of people that appeal to us. But, but everybody's not easy to love. And that's all right, because we're not easy to love by everybody that, that, uh, that we know. But, but when you talk about God, it, it, it's the timing of this love that stands out in particular. Paul effectively says that God demonstrates his love for us and in the original language, this is rendered in the present tense, which means not only did God show his love for us by sending Jesus, but he shows his love for us day by day, every day. And God does this even though we have failed to be what he intended for us to be. Now, now Paul said, while we were yet sinners, while we were doing the very things that necessitated Jesus dying on the cross, God loved, you know how hard it is to love somebody while they're doing you wrong? Yeah. How many of us have struggled with, you know, even after they've done the wrong, I'm still struggling with forgiveness because they haven't apologized. It, while we were yet sinner, but before we understood what repentance was, God demonstrated his love for us by sending uh, a Christ Jesus to die. And, and, and I submit to you that only God would do that. You know, your only son. You know, I, I have one son. And, and, and ain't too much I'd give him for. And, and if you ask me, would you give him for a world that most of them are going to respond unfavorably to the sacrifice? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, we're going to have to find another remedy or y'all sure enough in trouble. And, and, and look, let me get scriptural on you. I, I believe the Bible still says, for the wages of sin. See, you getting what you earned. And, and if the only provision is, is my only son, uh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> the impact of what the apostle declares often gets by us. What God did, he did because who, of who he is and in spite of who we are. It wasn't done because God believed we, when I say we as the human race, would respond favorably. It was done because the need existed. You know, that's love. When you do it simply because there's a need. It doesn't matter who has the need. You know, sometimes we're more inclined to help certain people than we are other folk. God just said the need exists. Now, it's a universal need. Everybody needs it. You know, the ones that will respond favorably and the ones that will not respond favorably. Everybody needs it, but I'm going to make it available to everyone. Not only does the cross in the middle speak of God's love, but the cross in the middle brought about salvation. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verse number 16 in your Bibles, 
Paul declares that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. See, salvation is not about our circumstances being made more to our liking or our lot in life becoming less rigorous. And I dare say there are some of us in here that could testify to the fact that since I've obeyed the gospel, it seems like in some ways my life has become more difficult. Anybody here, you found it a little more difficult to deal with your family when you take a stand for the gospel? And some are laboring under the delusion that, that, that when I give my life to Jesus, and I don't know why we say that because it's his already. You know, we, we no more give our lives to Jesus than we do. We, we give every Sunday. What we really do, we give back. You know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We, we belong to God, uh, body, spirit, and soul. So, so, so when I obey the gospel, what I'm really doing is giving back to God was his in the first place. But we will encounter that life does not get easier. Now, it does get better, but it doesn't necessarily get easier simply because you obey the gospel. One of the things we need to appreciate is that we come to God not to get what we want, but to receive what we need. You know, I, I think if we embrace that, there'd be a lot less people walking around disillusioned uh, uh, with the prospect of Christianity. You know, I think sometimes we, we come to God kind of like Naaman did. You remember Naaman the leper? Uh, behold, I thought. It, Naaman, you the leper. Now, now, if you knew how to cure leprosy, why you come down to see the man of God and do all this thinking? It, it's obvious the cure for leprosy is beyond you. It, it, but he has the nerve to come down and behold, I thought. Now, now I can't cure my leprosy, but I sure enough going to tell him what he ought to tell me to do. You know, I thought he'd come out and just call on the name of his God and do some kind of magical incantation and, and, and I'd be cured. We come to God like that sometime. Lord, I've accumulated all kinds of baggage and luggage in the years you blessed me to be here. And I thought when I got baptized, you'd just somehow wash all of that away. Well, you know, usually if you pack and unpack right, however long it took you to pack a suitcase, it's going to take you that long to unpack it. Now, that's, now, now you could just dump it all out on the floor, but, but, but if you're going to do things right, you put it in there piece by piece, you take it out piece by piece. Well, if you accumulated luggage over years, can you imagine if God just wiped it all away in one fell swoop? If we kind of be in the mind, every problem I have, I ought to be able to pray at 8.15, and by about 8.20, God has handled everything. Sometimes we learn lessons in the process. You know, that's how we learn life lessons. You know, one of the greatest life lessons I learned is that if you get paid on Wednesday, it don't go out and spend it all Wednesday evening. Because it's going to be a long time to that two weeks go by before you get paid again. A life lesson will teach you stuff, uh, you know, hardship will teach you stuff like that. Sometimes God allows us to go through what we go through because we do our best learning when there's some rigor attached to it. And appreciate Christianity is not a sick man getting better. It is a dead man receiving life. And when we talk about life, yeah, God does make this life better, but, but he offers to us something so much better than just this life. Uh, uh, through the cross, Jesus made possible the reconciliation of sinners to God. 
You know, if we live with that in mind, uh, you know, the, the, the things that go on in this life, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, you just shrug them off. But you're kind of like Paul. But I learned to look at the big picture. The things of this life are temporary. But I'm working towards something much better than the things of this life. Yeah, everything in this life is not going to be just the way I want it. But thank God there's something better to this life than this life. And then last this morning, the cross in the middle gives us hope. In Hebrews 7, verse 19, uh, the Hebrew writer declares, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now, now when we talk about uh, a, a better hope, uh, appreciate from 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, that Jesus is our hope. You know, just not sitting around wishing. A lot of time we use the word hope. It's just what you want to happen. You know, I hope to get a promotion. I, I, I hope to finish school. I, I hope this happens. I hope the other happens. Well, well, this is not just sitting around wanting things. Paul declares that Jesus is our hope. And, and if we get the sense of what we're being told uh, uh, in the Hebrew letter, we're told some very good news about our relationship with God. You see, Jesus achieved something monumental for us by virtue of his sacrifice. Now, one of the things we know is that we had a relationship problem with God. Our sins separated us from him. That was the problem between us and God. Well, more for us than for God, because God is who, who, who he always has been. But our sins have separated us uh, uh, from God. And I submit to you that there are at least two things that will keep a man from God. Now, it, it, you might sit around and think of more. I just got two I want to submit this morning. Uh, uh, the first thing that will keep a man from God is, in fact, sin. Uh, uh, you remember Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Isaiah declared, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear hit heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. How do you think the blind man knew in John chapter 9? He said, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. See, sin separates a man from God. But the other thing that will keep a man from God, I, I submit to you, is fear. See, one of the reasons man fears death is that he fears facing God with, fe uh, uh, with sin on his soul. You know, that's why some people would prefer not to talk about uh, God and, uh, and you know, even go so far as, as to deny God. That's really fear speaking. See, because if there is a God, then I'm accountable to him. If there is a God, I'm subject to him. And if I don't live as he requires, then I'm going to be judged by him. And when we look uh, again at the Hebrew letter in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15, the Hebrew writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. One of the things Jesus did uh, on the cross is he eliminated uh, the things that would keep us from God. 
Uh, he became the atonement for sin. And now we have no reason to fear death or God because we can be reconciled to him by the blood of Christ Jesus. When you read the gospel account, there were some that even as Jesus hung there on the cross, continued to mock him. But there were those that understood what was happening. God has blessed us to see that Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself on that cross in the middle. And the challenge is to live daily with the remembrance that Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself, but I don't want to continue to do the very things that caused him to be on that cross in the first place. God calls us to be reconciled uh, through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on the middle. And he calls us to do that by hearing the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, but raised on the third day for our justification, believing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, being willing because of what Jesus has done to turn from sin and to turn to God, the willingness to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and then submitting as a matter of obedience to the command of God to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And when we go down in the waters of baptism, God washes away our sins, indwells us with his spirit, and adds us to the church. And the expectation on God's part thereafter is that we will live a life worthy of being called his child. Perhaps you're here this morning, you want to respond to the invitation or you want the church to pray for you. And if either of these are the case, then we bid you to come as we stand and as we sing.